Hi, I'm Dorian Wheel. Welcome to Thrive with Dr. D because life isn't just about survival, it's about thrival. Hello, everybody. I'm Dorian Wheel and welcome to Thrive with Dr. D. This is the show where we talk about optimal living, skills, concepts, issues that we all have to either develop or deal with at some point in our life. Some are just part of life, predictable life points, issues to do with love and with criticism and with conflict resolution and with stress management that are part of our daily lives. Others might be unexpected life events that hit us like a curved ball and sometimes knock us out. We also talk about post-traumatic stress and on this show, because we're looking at thrival, not only survival, we also talk about post-traumatic growth. In other words, are there lessons through adversity? At the time, no one ever turns around and says, hey, thank you, Lord, for this amazing learning opportunity that you're sending me. But sometimes afterwards... When you can process it, when you can catch your breath, maybe when you're not in the midst of a crisis, which may be physical or may be financial or may be relational, and often all of it all mixed together because one part of it affects the other, you start looking at maybe has there been a priority shift through this? Am I going to live my life differently Do I value things like support in a way more than I ever did before? And so perhaps the Chinese weren't stupid when they used the same symbol for crisis as opportunity. And the person that is with me today, my very special guest, is Lauren Siegel, who has written and documented a time in her life where she was suffered and struck by cancer not only once, but several times. And I was saying just before we started that this book, if you read this book, I guarantee you, you will not be able to put it down. Because cancer, a love story, how do you associate cancer with love? I mean, that has to be one of the first questions, Lauren. But cancer, a love story, could be an adventure story where you wait for the next episode. What happened? Was this successful? Did this come back? How did this person respond? What happened to you physically and to your family and your relationships emotionally? It is also a documented story about a personal challenge over a period of time. But it is also a love story, which is quite amazing when one thinks of cancer. And so it's a roller coaster of the gamut of all emotions, of experiences that are really openly shared in a way that you see the kind of person and feel it as one is going through it in its kind of rawness and in that way it's compelling it is also in a way a textbook it was a textbook for me because it taught me and I think many of my colleagues perhaps doctors and family members of what to look for and how to understand and not only to understand how to be with people in the face of going through this in a way that people want to learn but don't know. So it's a real gift from all of those points of view. And I know that, uh, Lauren, today is a very auspicious day for you. And perhaps it wasn't a mistake that we should be doing this interview. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you for that phenomenal introduction. And it is very auspicious today because I realized when I was driving here that it's actually five years to the day since my third diagnosis. And I think that was my third diagnosis that really set me on a, a journey into the world of cancer that we can talk more about. Your notion of post-traumatic growth, I think, is, I've never heard that before, but it's such a striking concept for me because I think it's exactly what is encapsulated in my title of Mm -hmm. Cancer Love Story. A love story. Yeah. Yeah. Let's ask you, make it open-ended because of why the love story part. You know, I'm also very struck by you saying that the Chinese word for crisis and growth is the same. And I think that for me... What happened during my cancer journeys was to discover a new way of loving. And it was a loving that was built not on only passion and good things, but on learning how to take difficulties and turn them into opportunities for love. And it wasn't only the love of my husband who stood by me through it all, but the love of a community that rallied around me at a very difficult time in my life. And I learned really that love isn't just about those romantic red roses on Valentine's Day, but it is about that tension between pain and suffering and overcoming that pain and suffering Mm. and being vulnerable that one really learns to love. Mm. So I think that it's a cliche on some level, but on another, difficulties really present opportunities mm. for new kinds of being, new kinds of relationships. Mm. And that for me is the paradox of cancer and the paradox that I wanted to capture in the title of the mm. book. When you were going through it, you were immersed in the illness, of course, but there was another part of you that was just overwhelmingly grateful for what was happening, not for the illness, I'm sure, at the time, but you were able to separate the support that you were getting, which was even at the time feeling like healing, like Mm. the healing power, Mm. not healing, but so valuable to you Mm. through the community that was rallying around Mm. and through the way that it was dealt with by your family. Mm. So if we had to take... If we're talking about that, the crisis and the opportunity, the lessons from that, question number one, I've got two questions. Was it sustainable that you've remembered and are you able to take that lesson into your life five years later? Hmm. So it is a challenge. And I have to say to you, it's a challenge I think about most days of my life is how to Take the feeling you have when you're in that space of illness and carry it into a space where you are no longer feeling those challenges. And I think it's something we all have to grapple with is how to hold on to experience. But particularly because illness is an experience that takes you so far away from the world that you know it. So I sit here five years on and I almost can't grasp what that illness did to my life because it disrupts the person you are in such a fundamental way. It takes you into a world that is so unfamiliar and so unknown and so far away from, I look at the cars on the highway outside, they look so ordinary. Your life becomes so unordinary. Mm. 
that to keep that texture and feeling is very hard when you are now past the treatment and and you are in your survival mode. But Dori, what I like to think is it's not so much that experience I hold on to, but it's the texture of the feelings that were produced there. So that's what I'm asking. You know, really, I think that as human beings, we have sometimes capacities and processes that we don't even begin to understand about numbing afterwards, about being in the moment at the time, about being able to in some way forget, but in other ways to remember, to mm. distance ourselves. Can you imagine what it would be like if you lived in that state mm. five years later? It was enough that you had to live in that state <laughs> at the time. Exactly. So that's not the part that mm. I think one should really hang on to i'm pleased that we don't yes with that because otherwise we could never move on mm. the part is where you highlighted one thing which was that gratitude for support and what that meant to you so i'm wondering if that in a way can be sustained such that it might have even influenced you in the way you deal with other people now yeah. five years down the line and that's exactly right. I think that what stayed with me is, I use the word because it's such a small word with such a big implication, is the word kindness. And sure. that for me encapsulates so much of what was underlying the community that I found myself in when I was ill. And it's that that has been sustained for me. Are you kinder? I'm a much kinder person and I'm kinder to myself and to others. And that was part of the lesson because I think that before I didn't ever stop enough to ask what I was doing to myself in my own life in terms of stress levels and work mm -hmm. and multitasking with children, etc. All the things that make life wonderful, but that actually stop, sometimes stop you from being kind to yourself. And I ask that question much more. I don't get it right all the time. I don't sustain kindness in my own being all the time, but I ask the question mm. a lot more. And I certainly feel like in my interpersonal relationships, there is that kindness that I try and aspire to. Mm. Well, there's that awareness now mm. and the ability to sustain what that meant to you and have the awareness in the present, mm. you know, five years down the line is amazing. You know, what I was also struck by, Lauren, is that you have a passion for whatever you do. Otherwise, mm. you wouldn't do it. Mm. You've been extremely passionate about South Africa and the political development of the country, mm. such to the point that you have manifest that, manifested it in what you write, and most particularly in the platforms that you've created in terms of showing the country and showing the world about the history and where we have to move. I know that you've created um, wonderful venues and platforms at Constitution Hill. You've worked with tolerance and with lack of tolerance on many platforms. You've been instrumental in the Holocaust. I know it's not only called the Holocaust Museum. It's the Holocaust and Genocide and Center. And Genocide Center. Mm. And so that kind of depth of caring that you chose to follow and become your work had to have that kind of depth of passion. You've taken that same kind of who you are mm -hmm. 
into being able to portray with such honesty, openness and integrity this journey. And there was something that seemed passionate about why you wanted to write this mm. and why you had to expose it. I'm sure that there were some people, maybe even in your family, said, but this is personal. Mm. What are you doing this mm. for, Mom? Mm. Or whatever. Mm. You know, I think that there is such a strong connection between the work I do in the world and the work I did in this book because I have to say it was something of a relief for me because for many years, as you've mentioned, I've been writing South African history and other people's history and other people's stories. And I've had to empathize and stand in other people's shoes in order to try and understand different perspectives of the world. And for the first time, I felt like the spotlight had been turned back onto me and I had to try and interview myself because mm. I spend a lot of time interviewing other people. And that skill is what I brought, I suppose, to the cancer journey. And I have to say there that it felt so important to me to use the skill that I'd been given in terms of writing and telling stories to put it into book form because at the end of my cancer journey, I realized how privileged I was, and we can talk more about this. And I use the word privilege in terms of how, I, how the treatment happened and how I had access to healthcare in a way so many people in this country don't. And the question was, what do I do with that privilege? How do I make something responsible out of my journey? And part of it for me was saying, I have this capacity to write and explore, and I'm going to use that to tell my own story. Mm. Not in a way that was in any way trying to reveal anyone else's weakness or to make my family uncomfortable, but because I felt I could give that story to other cancer patients. If you could say, just following up from that, what of the story, I mean, the whole story is so dense and rich in many ways. But if you could choose your own nuggets and your own highlights of my desire for this, my wish for this is that people would take away, fill in the gaps, what? That the things that most frighten you in life can also be the things that make you grow the most. That Pain and suffering need to be leaned into. You need to learn how to embrace them. And you need to learn how to take the vulnerability you feel inside and make it an, a chance for people to feel that with you and to use it to grow, I suppose. So I get back to that. To that. Yeah. So those are really important. But let's transport you. And I know that you have distance because you've said it's five years, but also emotional distance to the time where you were in the middle of this. Mm. I'd like to ask you, if you had to talk to somebody then mm. about these lessons that you've learned now, in your opinion, do you think it would be comforting to be able to say, look, you'll see that you're going to grow from it and she is it advisable to do this when they're in the middle of it how would you want to relate how would you have wanted to be related to mm. going through the journey so it's such a good question because I remember the moment when for me there was a shift and it was a moment when I felt like I couldn't cope with the idea of having chemotherapy I had a needle phobia 
I was in absolute terror of what it meant, and I just thought I could never get through it. And I, in fact, made contact with a cancer survivor in America who did coaching. And her message to me was very simple. And it sounds so simple now to say it, which is your control has been wrested away from you through the cancer, but you are in control of how you respond to the cancer. You can take charge. You can take charge of your fear. You can learn ways to overcome your phobia. You can take charge of the unknown and find ways to speak about it that isn't so frightening. And it was that little moment where I realized that Disease is one thing, that's what you're given, but illness is another, that's how you respond to Mm. the disease. And I had capacity to change how I responded to my fear. And that broadened my world immensely Mm. because then I was on a journey. So I want to say something sort of a little bit controversial and maybe challenging, Mm. that when you spoke to her, she recognized the fear. And when you spoke to her, she spoke about the lack of control and the uncertainty about the future. And what I find a lot, and I don't know if you agree, that you can talk about the response, the ability to respond. I mean, you found that extremely important and extremely empowering, but that people tend to do that too soon without recognizing what the person is going through in the moment. So would you agree that it's possible to say, "Ah, you are petrified, Mm. you have a needle phobia, Mm. you move in your head from one scenario to another. Mm. This feels, you feel out of control and this feels devastating. Mm. Then talk about what you said because what I'm finding is that this whole and I want to call it a myth Mm. right of the power of positive thinking misinterpreted and Mm. projected onto the person too soon Mm. so for instance let me give you an example I knew a woman who had cancer and it was terminal she wanted to talk about her daughters going forward and her fear and so on so on And everybody, well-meaning people around her said, don't talk like that. You're making yourself sick. Mm. You're getting worse. You know, no, it's not going to happen. And nobody was giving her the space Mm. at the time to deal with what she had to deal with. Mm. So I'm asking you because we're wanting people, you all who are listening to this, to have something to think about, to take away either how to deal with it with yourself or particularly with those around you. What would you say about that, the recognition of where you are first? Look, I think it's quite a complex question, this, and there are no easy answers. But can I go back to a practical thing I did in that moment with her? Because maybe it starts to answer things that you can't do everything at once. So I'll tell you what I did with the incredible fear I was experiencing. Yes. I told her story. I was working at the time in Boy Patong with a woman, with a group of women who were telling the story of being part of the Boy Patong massacre. And we were using the, a technique of sewing as a way of healing, as a way of telling their story. And I told this to Marissa over a Skype call. And she said to me, my goodness, 
Look how you're already working with needles that bring healing mm, and good. Amazing? And then mm. she said to me, think in your own life what you can do to harness the power of the needle so that it's not just a thing of fear for you, but it's a thing that really works that she for you. she recognized there was fear. Yes. Yeah. So what I did, I phoned mm. my friend who's brilliant at tapestry, and I said, we're starting a sewing group in the weeks before chemo. And I'm going to sew with you. So I hold a needle in my own hands and I learn to use that needle in a different way, way. to how yeah. I think that I know my fear of needles to be. And these women came into my house one Sunday, it's five years ago, and they brought with them the baskets of tapestry thread and the needles. And we sewed and we cried and we talked and I can't answer your question exactly how I dealt with the bigger fears, but I can say that I broke down that fear mm. into a manageable bite-sized chunk. I brought people into it. They came into my heart and they helped me. They were helped me mm. on that first day of chemo. Mm. I had that as my bodily experience. Mm. So what I'm saying is that someone who you spoke to acted as the springboard, right? Mm -hmm. But they recognized the fear and they said, this is an association and this is what I can do with it. Mm. It's often that people will not want to recognize the fear or mm. talk about it, mm. which blocks them from any future path, right. you know, or whatever it is. They just have to man up. Mm. Be fine, mm. not be vulnerable, mm. have statements that are bandied around mm. so easily what will be will be. Mm. Or people who say, look, you know, it's not in my hands, which disempowers mm. them from the tapestry. Mm. Then they can't say what I need is to find another way. Mm. I'm loving the people here, mm. the sense of support and community, which means so much to you. And mm. holding the needle, which is just lovely, mm. you know, it can become a metaphor. In mm. fact, mm. you know, let's hold the needle differently. Mm. Let's deal with the things mm. differently. Yeah. And I think that part of the problem with cancer specifically is that there is this image of the cancer warrior as an icon of I'm going to fight yes. cancer, I'm going to oh, beat so cancer, I'm going to take it on like a warrior. There are pictures all over the chemo room about that. And for me, that was part I learned by reading, part of a marketing tool to raise money for cancer. Mm. But as a tool for coping, it is a very bad tool because it suggests that the strength you have to look for is exactly what you're talking about. Mm. I'm going to conquer this. I'm going to mm. be fine. I'm going to feel positive. Mm. No, my journey was exactly the opposite. It's I'm going to feel weak and I'm going to learn how to oh, speak about that. I'm going to learn that the warrior is the weakness and the warrior is learning how to deal with it's that actually weakness. actually the, wa the, the vulnerability. vulnerability. Sorry, exactly. the vulnerability. Yes. Is strength, actually, yeah. and courage. Yes. It's the power of vulnerability. Vulnerability, yeah, because it allows yourself to be seen, and it allows for authentic connection. Exactly, and it allows to say, "This is what I'm dealing with. It's sore, mm. it's frightening, it's mm. not easy, and now I can see some 
some ways mm. of perhaps moving move forward with it. There must have been times. Let's just hear because we haven't. We really haven't done that. There were three different diagnoses. Four. 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 Four there. Oh. And each one, there must have been just absolute. I mean. Hopes, of course, and even beliefs that, okay, okay, now at last, after number one, you know, I'm going to get the result. We've been through it. And and in fact, there were times where you got positive results and then it came back again. Mm. Positive not meaning the cancer was positive. Mm. I mean. But that I thought it That you thought it had been dealt with. Yeah. Tell <sighs> us a bit about having to face it over and over again, and the devastation of that, and what gave you the strength? So yes, this the, this week five years ago was probably the hardest week I oh, can yeah. say I'll ever have in my life because I really believed that after the first diagnosis I wouldn't get cancer again. I was 23 the first time. Sure. The second diagnosis I was 45 and I had a double mastectomy and they'd removed my breasts and I really thought I had dealt with it. So you can imagine at the time that they said to me, this lump you're feeling is cancer in the 1% of breast tissue you have left, that there is like a tremendous sense of disbelief. And, you know, Johnny, my husband and I went into a completely strange world. We had to get on a plane to go to a celebration my family was having far away and I chose not to tell anyone. So we went through a week of celebrations where Johnny and I were holding that secret. And in fact, he couldn't do it. He flew back to try and get my test results. He's a doctor, so he was sending my tissue samples elsewhere. Everything. Doing everything doing he possibly everything. could. And Using I was every person that he ever knew <laughs> on the face of the earth. He came back yeah. to do that while I was on this ostensibly unbelievable holiday. And each night I would go to my hotel room saying, I'm, I was crying and phoning my friend back here and saying, I feel mad. I'm not coping. And that was the start of really feeling out of control. But it's a step by step thing. I came back. I faced the fact I have to have chemo. I faced the fact I'd have to have radiation. And Somewhere in those little steps, you find the capacity to deal with the disbelief because the shock and disbelief. Are These what kind of statements, you know, that one hears quite a lot. Maybe, you know, as you say, cliches, but cliches have truth. Mm. They come from somewhere. Mm. So that one, you know, that you often hear that the Lord will only deal with you, mm. the cards that you can cope with mm. or something along those lines. So... I mean, I would love your response to that. Mm. But also I want to ask you, did you ever in the depths in those moments just lose, really lose the hope, Mm. maybe even to the point where you thought, look, I don't even know if it's worth continuing anymore? Mm. I certainly had very dark places. Mm. I certainly had places where I thought I'm not going to make make it it. through this. Mm. I can't. I think that when you have children – and you're in those places. Very important. You can't stay there for yeah, too long, Dory. I had a child writing a trick, ending his school career. I had another daughter just starting high school. And in a way, that 
curtailed the options <laughs> in terms of how dark I could become yeah. Yeah. because they you, kept me going. Yeah. I had to find yeah. a way forward. You had forward. to stand in the fire irrespective. I had to do it. Yeah. And, of course, personally, I went to that space to say, what in my life has made this happen to, to me, me again and again and again? I do believe there was a message. I think it's very important not to become self-blaming because the thing with cancer is there's also a whole philosophy there where you can say you've done this to yourself it's your cells turning against your own oh my cells goodness. i'm you sorry know, you can go there i can't go with that but anyway <laughs> but there's a whole uh, literature out uh, there that says you are responsible for everything that happens to you and it can become very self Blaming. You know why I think it is, though, Lauren, is because then in the next chapter, they're going to say, therefore, your actions are going and, and you can make yourself better. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the thing that follows it on, yeah. you know. But I know, I mean, people will look back and say they'll think of an incident where they shouldn't have behaved in a certain way or they wronged somebody yeah. or a series or now I'm being punished mm. and so on and so on. And I, as you say, you tell me more about the destructiveness of that because then you're not only dealing with what you have to deal with, you're dealing with the guilt for the person that you are to cause mm. of this is. Mm. And it's, I think it's, it's really quite cruel to It's a cruel to road that. to go down. Yeah. But I think where it led me was to say again that I can take charge. Not that I need to stay in a place of blame in my body, but that I need to do something for myself about moving mm. forward. Mm. That I need to take control mm. to some degree of mm. how I'm going to take this journey with my body forward. Mm. Mm. Because I think... A lot of us, until we ill, just take for granted, granted our health. Totally. So we have to then find the way not to take that Definitely. for granted. And how are we going to do that? Mm. What is what is the path? So tell me the day now. It was the third diagnosis five years ago. Then you got the cancer again for the fourth time. And you had the strength to go through it. <laughs> I mean, you didn't even know it was one more time. But mm. thankfully, that was a one more time. Mm. The day that you got the results after the fourth time. So there's never one day. It was a bit of a process. I had finished radiation. I'd finished 18 rounds of chemo, sure. 36 rounds of radiation, and I was going on holiday. I was going to celebrate. I was going on a hike. I was going to walk. I was going to feel the joy. Nothing swore. I mean, you, you go big or go home. A hike. A hike. Uh, I wanted to climb mountains. I climbed mountains all through my cancer. Yeah, of course. And I love climbing mountains. And I was going to go and climb the next set of mountains in the Eastern Cape. And a friend noticed something on my arm and I thought oh do I have to go and have it cut out now there's I would just want to go on my holiday and of course the thing got cut out and it was a malignancy a, a skin malignancy totally unrelated oh my goodness to my breast cancer and it you know it wasn't even a month later and I I think because I'd gone on such a journey of learning how to deal with things that you really don't want to deal with, that I got back into that mode and I said, here we go, but I'm going to make it through this. And I got all my support going around me again and I had to go for an operation and I had to miss the hike. 
and I had to come through it. But goodness, the sweetness when I heard that this thing hadn't spread uh-huh. and the joy that I felt gave me a sense of something is looking after me yeah. and something is saying, take life by its horns and just live it in the most dramatic fashion that you can. three things that you're saying here, you know, the one is that the future is now. Yeah. That's what you're saying. It's not one day when. Yeah. I mean, and it sounds like to the extent that you can, you are really doing it. The other thing that that you're saying is that it seems as if there was a priority shift. Like in terms of what was important before, somehow pales into insignificance <laughs> with this mm. and i'm seeing that you're living like that there was another one which i've lost for the moment that i said my goodness for me the other her. one was knowing that whatever life throws at me i'm going to get through, through it. it a resilience yeah absolutely a resilience that a, was like a, Okay, this is now unbelievable. This has become a farce, you know. What was a comedy before of three times, on the fourth yes. time it's become a farce. But still, you have to learn how to deal with that mm. and you have to draw on your inner resilience. Sure. And I just had to. I didn't sure. have an option. I had sure. to go through it again. I had have you been on, on the hike, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> you want to know something? Oh. Next Tuesday, I'm going on a hike with the people I was going with oh, then. Wow. To celebrate, one of them is sure. turning 50 and it, I I'm, have hiked since then, but this one feels like That's, the special one. This is the hike. Yeah, this, this is, is the, the one. Hike. Sure. This is the kind of reclaiming of that moment where I was told, you're not going hiking, you're going back to into hospital. Sure. <laughs> so, my goodness, it really is a journey. It's a journey of love and support, priority, resilience. Let me just ask you this before we end. The view of the world, has it influenced you in terms of having an optimistic worldview, a realistic worldview because of what happened, a pessimistic worldview of what can happen? Mm. How do you see the world after this? Mm. A fair place? An unfair place? I've stopped asking the questions about fairness and unfairness. That's what happened to me. I used to think those were important questions. I now know they're not. That there is no prediction about the world. There is no fairness. There is no fairness to having cancer four times before you're 50. But look at what it's given me. So Mm. I didn't need to ask that question. Mm. I'm an optimist by nature. I'm a glass half full kind of person. Mm. I like to think that everything I do now is something I want to be doing. And I try and take as much enjoyment as I can. So the other lesson is authenticity, living authentically from the inside out. Making choices every single time. And I don't want to come across as if I've conquered all this, as if I know how to do this from A to Z, that I always make the best choices, that I always know how to be kind to myself. It's a constant struggle. But... It's a struggle I'm fully engaged in on a conscious level. Mm. And that's all I can say to you now Mm. is that you bring some of those things into the forefront of your mind that you take for granted before. And I like that. Mm. I like that my life is now 
multicolored in every step I take. Mm. It's never simple. Mm. It's just given a new vibrancy and a new kind of passion. I've always been passionate, as you picked mm. up, but there is, I think, just an extra tinge sure. to that passion. Amazing. So, I mean, you like it, but we really also like it because you've given us, you know, gifts to the world about possibility, really about possibility, about, I would say, how do you not let suffering go to waste? Mm. How can you say it was Ah, it was just indescribably traumatic at the time. But there's also the kind of person that I've become, the values that I've developed. Mm. And what we all hoping is that you hear some of those lessons. To listen to people mm. and say, I had to go through this to mm. learn about these, these. kind of things. Mm. Maybe there's just a little bit of a shortcut Mm. which we can offer you through mm. sharing mm. your own experiences and your story like this. Mm. So just thank you. Thank you so much. for thank, thank you for the opportunity to talk about Great. it. And I do want to say that we pick up what you started with in the beginning, that this book was written with the idea of creating some kind of template for coping uh -huh. because I felt like I learned a lot from other people. And when you give people a template and to say there is a way and there are some pathways that can help, they might not all be for you, but it's, some of them might work. I think you are giving something mm. back to mm. a community. Well, there's absolutely no doubt. And you've done it, you know, with courage and openness mm. and absolute sincerity and mm. your usual passion. Mm. So thank you very, very much. Thank Lauren. you so much thank for this you. conversation. You really need day. to read this book, everybody. Do yourself a favor and read it. It's amazing. Thank you. It's called Cancer Love Story. It's by Lauren Siegel and it's available everywhere. Is it? Takealot.com is your best okay. access point for it. Good. Sometimes it is in the bookshops, but not always. Okay. So I'd go to that Takealot.com. There you are. I'm Dorianne Wheel. Thanks for listening to Thrive with Dr. D, a Jackpot podcast.